Okay, benefits uh, of a community of leaders. This is where we're at in your outline. And I have listed, uh, not so much because I want to go through all this, but just for your benefit, the biblical evidence, or a good bit of it, for plurality of elders, plurality of pastors in the New Testament churches. And there is no prescriptive passage that I'm aware of that says you must have a plurality of elders in the church. But our descriptive evidence that in passing describes church after church after church after church after church, when you add that all up, it, it screams prescriptively that this is really uh, the way God intends things to function. Uh, we're going to be looking at things more pragmatically and, and ask the question, well, is this a, in what way is this a healthy way to function? But uh, this is based on, gosh, the deep bedrocks, first of all, of what we've talked about all our day together, the very relational nature of the church itself uh, assumes logically that its leaders will be relational and in relationship with one another. But then there are verse, there's verse after verse after verse that show us that this was indeed the case. Uh, one of the things I do want to draw your attention to on here because I think it's rather fascinating and I don't hear this taught very often is I have under B a question, a gospel trajectory. And there's a question mark there because it's only a, a little a bit of tantalizing data. But I, you know, as I always have to ask myself, where in the world did the early Christians get this idea of plurality leadership in a family? Uh, every single one of their families that they looked at in the ancient world had a human male who exercised profound authority in that family. And the early Christians decided that was not going to be the case at the human level in these communities they called the family of God, that God was to be the, the father of the community. That's very, very countercultural. So uh, how did it end up that the Jewish churches, the Gentile churches, just kind of universally across the spectrum, we see this model? And it may be uh, that Jesus uh, very specifically instructed his disciples along these lines. We don't know this for sure. Uh, I would love to have all that stuff somewhere that Jesus taught the disciples between the resurrection and the ascension. Oh, would that be a treasure? But uh, the Lord didn't seem to think it was necessary for us to be faithful, so we don't have it. But there is a hint in the Gospels, and I want to take you to it. Over in Matthew 28, Jesus says on your outline there, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master, and you are all, what? Brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Call no man father, as one translation puts it. Now, uh, it also pretty much says call no man teacher, and so we need to you know, understand uh, that uh, this may not be a categorical uh, statement, but there's a hint over in Mark's gospel that there's more to this than meets the eye. And on your outline, I have uh, Mark chapter 10. We've already been in this passage. We started in this passage where Jesus met the rich young ruler, remember, and told the guy to, you know, sell everything he has, give it to the poor, come follow me. And the guy had too much stuff, so he went, turned his back, and went away without following Jesus. Well, and Jesus goes on and talks about how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Peter pipes up and says, look, Lord, we have, uh, here on your outline, verse 28, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus says something very interesting. He says, I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home, and now he lists a whole list 
of natural family relations. Brothers, sisters, mother, father, or children. Now, how many are listed there? Count them. Five, right? Okay. Or fields, for me, in the gospel, will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, and here comes another list, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and the age to come, eternal life. Now, those uh, relations we receive in the present age, there in parenthesis, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children are relationships in the church family. Okay? How many are listed there? Not five, but four, right? Brothers, sisters, mothers, children. The first list was brothers, sisters, mother, father, children. What, what list is missing from the relations in the church family? Father. Father. Isn't that interesting? Even here we get this hint, this little uh, uh, kind of tantalizing hint that maybe it was Jesus who very clearly instructed his disciples not to have a senior father, a papa figure in the local church. We don't know for sure, but I find it very interesting. At any rate, I'll leave you with that, and let's move into the, more the pragmatics in here and talk about practical benefits of uh, plurality leadership. The first uh, set of blanks I have you guys fill in is this, that uh, plurality leadership provides God's leaders with moral, and uh, I put ministerial, but you might write relational accountability in there instead. Uh, ministerial, relationally, it's more than just moral accountability. What we're going to talk about here, we, when you think about accountability, we think, you know, yeah, the relationships keep... Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, an elder, uh, you know, sexually pure, keep them from embezzling money, these kind of things. But there's an issue I want to talk about here for some time this morning that is the abuse of uh, spiritual authority. That interestingly enough, churches are quick to, to, uh, to remove pastors who have an affair, but they will tolerate the abuse of authority again and again and again if the church is growing and there's money in the plates. It's just a, uh, a remarkable phenomenon. Uh, with well, I'm going to take you to um, this uh, book I wrote, Embracing Shared Ministry. It's kind of what the conference's themed are about, but I uh, asked Alex if I could back up and deal with the issue of um, uh, the church's family to get into this, because I think that's so important to understand the basic theological roots of this community stuff. But in this uh, book, I deal uh, at one point in the book, it's not the main message of the book, but with a scenario, pro a problematic scenario that's increasingly uh, um, characteristic of our churches. And again, uh, we talked a little bit earlier about how our uh, pastors are suffering from the structure of a hierarchy with a senior pastor figure. What we're going to talk about now is how those who work for them and uh, attend church under their ministries at times are suffering because of a structure that uh, enables rather than uh, controls uh, unhealthy relational uh, stuff on the part of those who are in charge, namely in this case the senior leader. So we'll spend some time on this because I think it's important. This is the kind of the dark belly, the underside of doing things wrong that make us really appreciate how important it is to do things right. So that's what we're going to be talking about here. So the first thing is relationally challenged pastors. And what I mean by that is uh, I've been teaching in graduate education now, the seminary, since 1994. And uh, over the years, as you guys are well aware, we've seen the breakdown of the family in America. And because of that, we have less and less young people growing up with healthy relational models. And especially for young boys growing up, fewer and fewer growing up 
seeing male authority utilized in a healthy, nurturing way in the home. So we get these wonderful young men who are called to the ministry coming to seminary for their formal training with a lot of relational baggage. When I went to seminary, uh, all seminary was at Talbot when I was there in the early 80s was the cognitive. All the moral, the relational, all that stuff came from my family, came from my local church. And so seminary was just a place to go learn Greek, Hebrew, theology. And the church was a place to grow me up in Christ. My home had been a place to uh, teach me basic relational values. Now we find ourselves uh, having to not just teach theology, but having to teach life to our seminarians. So we have a whole major, a whole institute of spiritual formation we never had on campus before. And as part of our Master of Divinity curriculum, there are at least three classes where these students need to go through what we call our uh, Intentional Character Development, our ICD program, and wrestle with things like family of origin, all this kind of stuff to try to at least, we can't give them a second childhood, but we can at least help them come to grips with some issues that might not have surfaced and might surface later in the local church to, to everybody's detriment. So that's a key, key thing. We'll talk a bit about this. There's a fellow named Manfred Ketz-Devries. He's in a, um, uh, a Danish fellow who's over here in the, uh, North America now, he wrote the following. He said, leadership, quote, leadership is the exercise of power. And the quality of leadership, good, ineffective, or destructive, depends on how an individual, depends on an individual's ability to exercise power. This fellow ought to know, Ket Degree's background has prepared him in a remarkable way to, to, to ferret out the unhealthy exercise of power and authority. This guy's Quite amazing. He took a doctorate in economics from the University of Amsterdam. Then he came over to the States and earned an MBA and then a doctor, doctorate in business administration from Harvard. And then he went, uh, uh, was later certified, to, uh, had extensive training in psychoanalysis and was certified to practice psychoanalysis by the Canadian Psychoanalytical Society and the International Psychoanalytical Society. So his research has centered around uh, kind of a nexus between business economics, psychology, centered around the relationship, get this, between emotional deprivation in childhood, this broken home, tough life, home life, on the one hand, and narcissistic leadership in the corporate sector later in life. So here's his description of a, uh, of a needy, emotionally needy narcissistic leader. He says, one of a leader's most important roles is to be aware of and to accommodate the emotional needs of subordinates. Um, bless your heart, Alex, you've written on how elders can learn to love the people they're caring for, isn't that right? And this is exactly what uh, DeVries is going after here, only not church elders, but businessmen in the corporate sector, but the application is manifold. He says, leaders driven by excessive narcissism typically disregard their subordinates' legitimate needs and take advantage of their loyalty. This type of leader is exploitative, callous, and overcompetitive, and frequently resorts to excessive use of depreciation. This behavior fosters submissiveness and passive dependency, stifling the critical function of, of subordinates. Now, hear me well, not all pastors, or even the majority of pastors, are narcissistic power abusers. But this mix, this phenomenon, is increasingly surfacing in our churches as things are going south in the family, uh, families of, that are raising our, our pastors these days. A friend of mine 
A real close friend of mine served as the chairman of a deacon board. This, this church didn't have elders. It was a classic hierarchy with a senior pastor and his paid underlings and then the, the deacon board that rubber stamped the pastor's decisions. My buddy was the chairman of the deacon board and he is a godly man, great family, who is a stellar public servant in his community. Steve, wrote, Steve my buddy, rose to, rose to a, a managerial position, I guess second in command. He might even, a, before he retired, became the, the police chief. But in law enforcement in our area, local municipality, highly respected by both his peers at work and his brothers at church. But Steve would be the first to tell you, and he told me this, that his primary role model as a leader didn't come from the Bible, not Jesus, but rather Captain Kirk of Star Trek fame has served as Steve's leadership icon since he was a kid. So he's there on the, for better or for worse, he's there on the police force thinking, what would Captain Kirk do if he was in my position, okay? So, uh, and why not? I mean, Captain Kirk is the epitome of an invariably wise, courageous leader. He always made wise decisions, right? Always made the right decision, who has, uh, has the unquestioned confidence and obedience of his crew at every turn. Okay, Scotty and the gang, yeah, Captain Kirk. As a police officer, moreover, think about this, Steve worked in a vocational setting that necessitated a top-down hierarchical command structure. Officers obeyed their superiors on the force without question, on the field and at the station, but this, of course, only served to kind of reinforce Steve's Star Trek view of, uh, of leadership and authority. Unfortunately, Steve, like many church board members, imported his secular leadership values into the Christian community, thinking it appropriate and right to treat his senior pastor, Carl, like his watch commander, or perhaps like Lieutenant O'Hara treats Captain Kirk. Okay? Unquestioned obedience, total support. I first gathered that Steve was having some second thoughts along these lines when he called me uh, one day. Uh, Several years ago, I hadn't heard from him for years, his call was occasioned by some pressing problems that had arisen in the church. Pastor Carl had forced the resignation of one of the church's most beloved and respected associate pastors there in Steve's church. The pattern had become a familiar one, and it was transparently clear to numbers of people in the congregation that the senior pastor was doing a poor job relating to his fellow staffers. There was a big uprising in the church among a bunch of key leaders and long-term attenders, and Steve, as the chairman of the board, was caught in the middle. So he calls me, and here is a classic example, folks, of an emotionally scarred senior pastor who lacked the relational straw to make bricks, so to speak, but who had amazing rhetorical gifts and had grown the church from 600 to 2,000 in five or six years, uh, but who was nevertheless given total authority to do as he pleased among his staff and the rest of the congregation by a board chairman, my buddy Steve, who had been socialized to run the church like a police department or perhaps uh, like the Starship Enterprise. It would have been almost comical if the results hadn't been so tragic in the lives of associate staff person after associate staff person. And I ended up being being the exit counselor for pastor after pastor who had been marginalized by this uh, senior leader. So in the midst of the crisis, Steve calls me, asks me from some advice. Joe, he says, should I ever question Pastor Carl's authority and decisions? And my response was, uh, and I was pretty familiar with what was going on there, I said, Steve, Carl's not Captain Kirk. You should question the authority of any church leader who cannot get along with his peers and who marginalizes the kind of top-rate ministers of the gospel that had been forced to resign from Bethany Church during Carl's decade-long tenure. Now, obviously, uh, 
Captain Kirk is a creation of modern media. In the real world, there are no Captain Kirks. There are no perfect leaders. What we have instead are persons with leadership gifts who are variously equipped emotionally to exercise those gifts in healthy ways with others. And sadly, some of our leaders, this Pastor Carl is illustrative, are hardly equipped at all. Uh, this fellow, Ket de Vries, makes a uh, connection between childhood deprivation and the unhealthy use of authority later in life that deserves extended citation. And so I want us to, uh, uh, to, to take a look at this uh, quote here now. He writes the following. He says, The degree of encouragement and frustration that children experience as they grow up and begin to measure the boundaries of their personalities has a lasting influence on their perception of themselves and others and the relationships they form throughout their lives. Any imbalance between their feelings of helplessness and the degree of protective nurturing they receive from their parents will be felt as psychological injury. An inappropriate level of frustration arising from their environment, handling, or ability to cope with discipline will feed their natural sense of impotence and they will commonly respond with feelings of rage, a desire for vengeance, a hunger for personal power, and compensatory fantasies of omnipotence. And then here's the kicker, this dynamic continues throughout life and if it is not adequately resolved within individuals as they grow up, it is likely to be reactivated with devastating effect when they reach leadership positions and learn to play the game of power. Now, it's likely, and here's the, uh, kind of exacerbates the problem here, it's likely that the proportion of narcissistic persons in leadership in our churches is even greater than the proportion of such persons among the Christian population in general. And that is because that narcissism and public leadership are like magnets. They're mutually attractive. A final quote from uh, Ked DeVries. He says, it's only to be expected that many narcissistic people with their need for power, prestige, and glamour eventually end up in leadership positions. Now, I won't make any application to the Contemporary political climate, I won't say anything about that. We'll just move on and talk about, oh, I just did say something, didn't I? Let's stick to the topic at hand. Uh, these tendencies would seem to call for some checks and balances in our churches so that we can help our leaders use their power in appropriately selfless, nurturing ways. We're not going to get perfect leaders. We're going to get increasingly broken leaders. And so that would seem to challenge us to think about how we're structuring our churches and our leadership to provide the kind of context that offers a kind of encouragement and accountability to the bright side of one's character and challenges and control to the dark side of one's character to really maximize the gifts and temperament that God has given us and, 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 our, and our families of origin, all this stuff. But unfortunately, this business-like approach to ministry that most of us are so familiar with has virtually nothing to offer. The opposite's the case, as it turns out, this hierarchical model of ministry where the pastor functions as a CEO supported by a theologically unsophisticated corporate board of directors, call them elders, deacons, whatever you want, who are more interested in numerical growth and financial solvency than healthy staff relations. This proves, in fact, to be a breeding ground for just the kind of unhealthy narcissistic leadership that Ket DeVries describes above. And we, we saw two of the uh, largest churches in our area, just in a few miles of my house, implode uh, because of two leaders that, that fit this, this, this pattern description almost to a T. 
Now, uh, that brings us to the second ingredient here in this uh, mix. We won't spend quite as much time on the next two. And uh, that is inadequate metrics for ministry. Inadequate metrics for ministry. And again, you don't need to scramble to write because you have this PowerPoint's yours. Just download it and do what you want with it. For several decades now, values and practices from corporate America have markedly influenced our views about leadership and church government in the evangelical community. Uh, looking at the camera and realizing that we have folks even overseas, I'm not uh, sure if this is the case overseas, but it's certainly, I believe, the case pretty much everywhere the Western church has had its impact, certainly where I come from in Southern California. And uh, the results of this uh, kind of corporate influence have been mixed at best. One of the more regrettable outcomes is a less than fully biblical set of convictions about what counts for success in ministry. And it's here especially that a corporate institutional approach to ministry directly undercuts the organic relational priorities of New Testament ecclesiology that we looked at earlier today and instead opens the door to the abuse of pastoral authority. It's been my experience in these top-down churches that uh, lay leaders like deacons and elders, I don't really even like the word lay, but it really is a appropriate for some of these institutional models. These folks are generally quite satisfied to see their churches, A, growing numerically, and B, solvent financially, because after all, that's what marks success out in the business community. If your company's making money and you're hiring more employees, you're successful. If it's not, you're not. If, however, attendance is, or if attendance is increasing and giving's up, it's assumed that the pastor is doing a good job, and there's little concern, for example, for the health of staff relations, or even in some cases for the quality of relationships among people in the congregation at large. David Platt's clever alliteration drives the point right home. He says, one of the intended consequences of contemporary church strategies that revolve around performances, places, programs, and professionals is that somewhere along the line, people get left out of the picture. Well said, well said. To be sure, numbers of church boards give small group programs a degree of emphasis in their ministries. Seldom, however, at least the ones I've noticed, do such leaders rate small group involvement as high on their priority list for their people as they rate Sunday attendance or financial generosity. In other words, how many people are in small groups doesn't tend to be as important a metric as our offerings, our financial situation, and our Sunday attendance. I've got up there on Sunday more than once and told our people, I said, you, uh, for your spiritual uh, health, you really need to be here Sunday, you need to be in a small group, for starters. And I said, but if you're in a season of life where uh, for a few months you absolutely can only do one or the other, stay away from Sunday and go to your small group. Because uh, uh, I have, over the 40 years I've been in ministry, never seen a Christian who only attends Sunday morning grow in the Lord. I have seen Christians who are in small groups and relate deeply in relationship with one another in ministry context grow like weeds again and again and again. Uh, now, um, uh, even more rare than a board that uh, uh, prioritizes finances, the Sunday attendance, and at least acknowledges the importance of small groups is a board, church board, that includes as a key benchmark of a thriving church healthy relationships among its leaders, paid, unpaid church staff. And that, for my money, ought to be the absolutely the non-negotiable measure of effective Christian ministry because the church is for, first and foremost a relational community. And if we can't make relations work in the church office among our leaders, something has gone seriously awry 
Okay? Uh, a couple of writers put it like this, Brad Harper and Paul Metzger. The church exists to love God, its own, the world, and the whole creation because it is loved in covenantal communion with God. This relational orientation indicates that the church is being driven. A church that begins with a missional purpose before it begins with its identity as a communal reality in relation to God is problematic. The orientation is very American, but is not biblical. Very American, but is not biblical. I was chatting with uh, Alex right before lunch about this whole deal of decision-making as leaders and how wound up we get over making sure we make the right final decision. When I'm, in retrospect, I look back on 40 years of ministry and I think 98% of the decisions, 95% of the decisions we made as an elder board, God didn't care what way it went. Should we have a preschool or not? I don't see anything in the Bible about that. Should we hire a Christian ed director or a new music person? Bible doesn't give me any. You know what the Bible gives us direction on? The process. The relational integrity of the process. How leaders are to interact while they're making decisions. And yet we're so socialized in the West to think about purpose, goal, uh, measurement. It's all about the end product. And the means justify the ends. As long as the church is packed with people and money, well, we can, uh, we can ignore this or that. Uh, so stop and think for a minute um, how counterintuitive it is biblically now to prioritize institutional values like Sunday attendance and finances over healthy relationships among a pastor or pastors and staff, or pastor and pastor. Uh, Jesus said that the world will know we are his disciples by our love for one another. So if we're not successful relationally at the top in the church office, we might as well close up shop, send away those Sunday crowds, and refund all those generous offerings. So one more ingredient here, because the issue goes deeper than the unhealthy emotional orientation of numbers of our church leaders and in institutional contexts, which in turn enable dysfunctional behavior on their parts. Sadly, those on the receiving end uh, of abusive leadership are often caught up in the web of deception as well. So we have compliant congregations. And uh, I'm going to skip around and not go into the detail I would like to uh, on this, uh, except to say uh, in a fast-changing, scary world in which we live, we're all looking for somebody to tell us everything's okay. This is a quote, uh, or a, a book here, The Allure of Toxic Leaders, Why We de Follow Destructive Bosses and Corrupt Politicians, How We Can Survive. The interesting thing is, uh, I chronicled all these abusive leaders in, this, in the book I wrote, and not a one of them, ever, they were all still in charge when I finished the book. I mean, it's, it's like the church never rises up and says, we're not going to tolerate this kind of stuff, okay? And because uh, we, we long for a leader. Check this quote out. And this, this was, here's a good leader, okay? Uh, this is a classic quote written uh, in the uh, LA or New York Times 10 days uh, after 9-11, back in 2001. It's a person re, uh, that they interviewed in Central Park about uh, uh, Giuliani and his leadership during that crisis at 9-11. says, Giuliani moves around the stricken city like a god. People want to be in his presence. They want to touch him. They want to praise him. On Central Park West, a woman searching for just the right superlative for the man who was guiding New York through the greatest disaster ever to hit an American city finally said, he's not like God. He is God. Wow. Now, we are a people. We are a bunch of lemmings in so many ways. And we're willing to follow somebody who, who is attractive, who is rhetorically gifted, who fills the offering plates, fills the pews, and tells us everything's okay. 
regardless of what goes on behind the scenes. Okay, uh, we're going to move through these quicker. I'm going to give you a couple of them here. Uh, plurality leadership moderates the personal impact of both the successes and failures of leadership. This is so, so crucial. I have a co-pastor. Everything he touches turns to gold. Everything he touches turns to gold. Uh, he's a chaplain of the L.A. Dodgers, and he has more people come to his, uh, his uh, chapels on the, with the Dodgers than anybody on all 20-whatever teams in Major League Baseball. Uh, and uh, Brandon's been very successful through his life. He needs somebody to remind him weekly that he visits the porcelain throne just like the rest of us, okay? Uh, and that's important. That's important, okay? Failures. Uh, we have two couples on our elder team. Uh, oh, yes, i got to stay in the middle here. I'm sorry. We have two, <laughs> two couples on our elder team that uh, do our marriage counseling. Very, very discouraging ministry because almost invariably these couples come for counseling when so much hurt has gone under the bridge that there's, all, there's, almost, there's always hope in Jesus, but there's not much hope left in them. And so they don't see a lot of success in their ministry, but they're doing a remarkable job, a remarkable job. And they need to hear that from the rest of us. Um, the next one up here is, uh, uh, really, I have a real burden for this one. Uh, and that is uh, um, that uh, plurality leadership gives church pastors the prophetic credibility to encourage their people to share their lives with one another. And let me just sum this up by saying, folks, the bottom line for us as elders, as leaders in the church, is to get people to love one another. Uh, Paul, I mean, Jesus summed it all up here in Matthew. What, what, did, what did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second slide, to love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets depend on these two commands. And then you get to the new, later in the New Testament, you realize, well, the first command is... Uh, lived out in the second command. They'll know we are his disciples, that we love God. How? By how we love one another. So Paul can go on and basically sum this all up by saying, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, murder, steal, don't covet, whatever other commandment are all summed up by this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. So my charge as a teacher in the church is, for the most part, to be teaching and modeling love. That's bottom line thing, okay? Bottom line thing. Based, of course, on the work of God in history and our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but if this is the case, if, this is, if Paul is right here, uh, there's a problem. Just where do I get the credibility Sunday after Sunday to tell my people to love one another if I'm a CEO senior pastor who answers to no one else in the church? If I answer to no one in the church office, how can I credibly tell others that they need to answer to one another? I can't with any integrity at any rate. Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch observe, he said, they say, we need to recognize that an authentic community can only be founded on changed relations between people, and these changed relations can only follow the interchange and preparation of the people who lead, work, and sacrifice for the community. In other words, it must begin with leadership. Uh, this is hardly rocket science. A pastor who has no genuine brothers in his congregation will lack the prophetic platform necessary to challenge others in the church, humbly to engage in the kind of surrogate sibling relationships that, as we've seen, God intends for his people. And uh, 
we have a culture where there is a hermeneutic of suspicion regarding authenticity, and so this is increasingly problematic. Now, here's a rather uh, pointed quote uh, by uh, uh, Frost and Hirsch. They, they write, We simply don't believe that people in our crap detector generation, savvy people who understand what it means to be constantly targeted by hundreds of thousands of clever sales messages, are going to follow other people who don't live out their messages. If leadership fails to embody the message, no one is going to follow. Leaders, you cannot lead where you will not go. You cannot teach what you do not know. For some of us at elder, as elders who are outgoing and very gregarious, it will it'll be easy to cultivate the kind of relationships we need to cultivate with our fellow leaders. For other nerds like myself who would rather be in a study with my door closed with a book or at the piano, uh, it's a little bit more challenging, but none of us are off the hook if we want to stand up incredibly, encourage our people to love one another on Sunday mornings. All right, um, for church members, and there's, there's overlap here. I'll give you the blanks, and then I'll, I'll wrap up a little bit with, with something here. Uh, uh, plurality leadership provides God's people with a visible reminder that Christ is the head of the church. My goodness, in a, in a era of celebrityism where you know, big TV pastors and famous pastors in the evangelical community get all this, this press, you know, and uh, we, we need to uh, uh, respond to that in a biblical fashion that keeps Jesus on the pedestal and us off of the pedestal. Oh, I'm way over here. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. When I start preaching, I start walking. When I teach, I stay here. So forgive me. Forgive me on the, on the, on the uh, media sites there. Okay, the next one um, provides God's people with a balanced perspective in the area of Bible teaching. This is important to us. We uh, rotate our preaching and we keep continuity by going through a Bible book. So it's not just uh, random. We'll be going through right now. We're just finishing 2 Corinthians and we go through, we share the teaching. And uh, this is really important because as you've gathered, uh, we have this kind of uh, continuum of, 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 of exhort, exhort, exhortation over here and, and, and information over here. And Joe Hellerman's more on the information side of the team, and we have others who are more on the exhortation side of the team. And that's a very healthy thing for our church to have a balance. And there are groups of people who gravitate toward each of us, and we uh, encourage them you be sure and come for the stew and not for the cook, see? And uh, I had an incident that was precious, uh, at least once I got over myself, it was precious, that happened uh, not too long ago. I preached my heart out, and those are guys who, you guys who teach in the church, you know how utterly emotionally draining it is and how uh, tender you are afterwards. And I'm walking up the aisle, and somebody came up and said, oh, Joe, I just love that message. I love when you preach, and on and on it goes. And, uh, and uh, so uh, I'm starting to kind of feel good about the morning, and I walked around the corner in the lobby, and I overheard somebody say to one of our other elders, I really like when that Brandon guy preaches. When's he preaching again? And uh, after I got over myself, I thought that's exactly why we do what we're doing. It gives the people the balance they need. All right, people don't like to go home without their blanks, so here we go. Vision casting. And by the way, there is no blank in the upper left quadrant of that chart we filled out earlier this morning, so uh, be assured. Uh, you can find something to fill it out, but I uh, just thought I'd say that because somebody already inquired. Uh, um, I already mentioned this next one, models genuine community at the highest level of church leadership. And then I'll, uh, the last one, it, uh, 
moderates the impact of the, uh, upon the church of the loss of a key leader. That's an important deal. We had a, uh, the, the founding pastor of our church who, who invited me to join him as a co-pastor when this whole plurality thing began years ago. Uh, his wife and kids came to him one day and says, we're done with you, we're done with your God, and we're done with your church. And uh, go into reasons for that, we won't. But at any rate, uh, he needed to be removed from uh, being a pastor elder. And uh, that uh, the church you'd think would, uh, if, if, if he had been the sole senior pastor, that church would have been over. Uh, he planted it. It was a small church, 150, 200 at the time. But we hit a little speed bump or two and just kept on going. And this was why, uh, because of this plurality. To his credit, the plurality that he insisted on uh, as the church began to grow. All right, I'm going to end with one more thing, and it's not going to be this. You can find uh, this is how we make decisions at church, and you can find this on the PowerPoint, but I can't. I'm going to go an extra minute or two and end with this because it's so, so important. I mentioned this before. Uh, if you're going to try this elder thing, and I know there are some churches here who are making some transitions along this line, I have a diagram uh, where consensus depends on community, and I cannot emphasize enough in our experience the absolute necessity of the trust and relational capital that we have developed on those Tuesday morning times together as brothers in prayer walking the Christian life together, how that has been the key to the consensus and the church leadership we've been able to exercise on those Saturdays. I cannot say enough. So here's a, oops, here's a final quote. This is a quote from the book that summarizes the whole message, and that is this. God's church is to be led by a plurality of pastor elders who relate to one another first as brothers in Christ and who function only secondarily and only within that primary relational context as vision-casting, decision-making leaders for the broader church family.